The majority of our clients have invested in Bitcoin, but not all of them. So as we sent this out and said we were updating our kind of, you know, our investment policy statement to include Bitcoin when the ETFs come out that we'd like to add it, so far no one's opted out. Um, in fact, we've had a number of people say, hey, isn't it reasonable to expect that the price would go up? And if so, I don't want to wait until that happens. Like, shouldn't I be buying more now? So it's actually, you know, we have people buying more now, which I think is great. Howdy. I'm Hannah Neuentschwander, a production lead at a soybean seed facility in central Illinois, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, David Aransky returns. David is a CPA and a certified financial planner and a good friend of mine. And last week, I got a letter from David that shocked me. He was writing it to all of his clients, and he said, for the last year, we've been talking about holding at least 1% of your portfolio in Bitcoin, but now I want to tell you that I am confident enough that this is an important part of the economy and you should move that from 1% to 5%. This is a bombshell. There are very few level-headed, conservative financial planners that are saying something like this. And so I thought, David, if you're willing to put it in writing and send it out to all of your clients who trust you the most, then I want to sit down and have a talk with you. So what you are about to watch is another great conversation about Bitcoin, but this time we go in totally different directions. You'll notice that David, after having a bunch of time communicating with so many of his clients, has a great way of explaining things to an audience that maybe is a little suspect of Bitcoin. Everybody knows that listens to this podcast that I have strong feelings about Bitcoin, but it's great to have somebody like David to explain it from a very different perspective. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We're going to get to that interview in just a moment, but first, a couple of announcements. Last week, a couple of listeners poked me to say, where can we have a conversation about the podcast? There were some things that they wanted to discuss, and they didn't know where they would find other people talking about the podcast. So first, you can, of course, go to YouTube and use the comments section. Also, Spotify is building out a really robust Q&A system that allows me to interact with you. But if you really want to talk about the podcast in a place that I am spending my social media time, then go to X. That's where I'm at. I've started to pay for the blue check mark, and it's given me all these features that have made it way more valuable for me to spend time on there. So if you would like to engage with me about the podcast or other listeners, just make sure you tag me at Vance Crow. On February 8th and 9th, Legacy Interviews is heading to Monticello, Indiana, where we're going to be recording Legacy Interviews. If you've thought it might be a wonderful thing for your loved one to sit down with me to record their life stories so that future generations can know their family history, but you thought maybe the trip to St. Louis wasn't going to work for you, then consider signing up for one of six slots that we have available on February 8th and 9th. We've got a bin dominium set up. That's a grain bin turned into a condo. And we've got a great space to be able to record these. And if you would like to learn more, go to LegacyInterviews.com slash Indiana to sign up for one of those slots. All right, without further ado, let's head to the interview with David Aransky. David Aransky, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Man, you wrote one of the most provocative letters I've ever received from a financial advisor. And you may be one of the only financial advisors in the country to be putting forward such a bold idea. You said in your letter just last week that you think people should be moving from a 1% allocation to a 5% allocation in Bitcoin. What made you decide to take that bold step? 
Yeah, I probably am only one of a handful and I probably know most of the others. Uh, and mine probably seem smaller allocations than what many other kind of advisors that are into Bitcoin would recommend. But it's been a journey. Um, so I first started learning about Bitcoin in late 2019, spent a few months reading about it before I even took any action. So it was early 2020 when I first started exploring it and experimenting with myself. And then it took another year and a half, two years of researching it before I was bringing this to clients and saying, hey, this is something you guys should consider. I think this is going to be an important asset in the future. But I realized that the general consensus of this is that it's, you know, fringe or a scam or whatever. Let's start, you know, let's start with wherever you're comfortable. And it kind of became a 1%, not because there was any magic of 1%, but because it was an amount that I, a lot of people could get off zero. It was a target that was small enough that's like, okay, I could lose 1% without, you know, it really affecting my financial plan. That's a reasonable target. Uh, the real goal was just to get people off zero and continue learning about it. Um, and so in 2022, uh, at some point in mid 2022, we actually like formally started recommending a Bitcoin allocation to our clients rather than just encouraging them to learn about it. Um, and the majority of our clients have some Bitcoin exposure uh, and not within the portfolio directly that we manage, but actually they own Bitcoin in self-custody which is great, especially considering most of them are baby boomers and retirees. Like this is a demographic that most people thought would have zero interest in Bitcoin, or even if they did, would not know how to handle it. And so uh, we're pretty excited about that aspect. Um, the 5% number has always or long been a number that I've wanted people to get to. I just didn't feel like I could recommend that to them without them understanding it. Um, yeah, zero to one is a lot easier than zero to five. Yeah, and so kind of the, the conversation was like, I'd love to be you at, see you at 5%, uh, but you need to get there on your own. You can borrow my conviction for the first 1%. Let's get you there. Let's you know get that kind of you know lifeboat or that minimum amount there, uh, and then let's work through. And some did, like some kind of fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, started learning, started sending me podcasts, and what have you read this article or this book. And those some of those people are at 5% and probably higher now. Um, but what's changed now is the major thing holding us back from recommending it was kind of the regulatory uncertainty. Uh, this was something that, you know, within the industry, just broadly people thought of as nothing. And the regulators were very wary, wary of it, which I think is legitimate. I mean, there's been tons of scams in the quote, crypto or digital asset space. And they don't really see the difference between Bitcoin and all those. I think over time that distinction will become very clear. But as of now, there's still a lot of murkiness around that. And so we wanted to do right by our clients by recommending it and helping them do it without getting ourselves into too much hot water with the regulators. Um, and so now what's changed is the SEC lost a court case against one of the companies that had filed for an ETF. Um, and the courts basically decided that the SEC was acting arbitrary and capricious towards them. Um, and so they have to go back and either uh, they reevaluate the application, either come up with a new reason for why they have to deny it or they have to basically approve it. And so because of that, you've now had all these major asset managers, traditional ones, BlackRock, Fidelity, uh, Franklin Templeton, all sorts of them get in line trying to apply for this ETF. And the SEC has been having conversations with them. And it looks like this is probably going to happen, uh, likely in 2024. Some people think very early in 2024. And if that happens, it suddenly we have a vehicle that is SEC approved. Uh, Bitcoin suddenly becomes far more legitimate in the eyes of you know the general public, the regulators, uh, the custodians, everything. 
And we've been waiting for kind of the green light of where we can just make this really easy and low friction for our clients. And we think we're close enough now where we feel comfortable saying, hey, let's increase the allocation to 5%. The problem is we're still a little, we don't, those products aren't available yet. Um, you mean the ETF? The ETF, the spot so ETF. So why, why don't we stop there for a second? When, yeah. when people hear ETF, if you're not in the market, what what is an ETF and why would somebody want to hold Bitcoin that way? Yeah, so an ETF is just an exchange traded fund. So think of a mutual fund, which is just a <laughs> pool of money where investors come together. There's a manager that takes care of all the actual buying and selling of the underlying securities. And you just get to hold this simple vehicle in your in your brokerage account, in your IRA, just makes it really easy. And the exchange trade part just means that rather than trading once a day like a mutual fund, you can trade it throughout the day much like a stock. It's a very efficient way to manage uh, stuff that's more tax efficient than a mutual fund. It's easier. You know, Most new pooled investment vehicles are ETFs for a number of reasons. I think that part for this is probably less important, the distinction between a mutual fund and an ETF. But the idea is that you'll be able to buy it in your you know, Schwab account, in your Fidelity account, in potentially even in some retirement, you know. Yeah, your 401k accounts. that yeah, you have with your business. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, in terms of Bitcoin specifically, it actually strips away almost all the attributes that are what I think amazing about Bitcoin, what makes it magical. <laughs> and so I actually, I have mixed feelings on the ETF. I'm really happy that it will, I think, bring a lot of new people into it and they'll start learning about it. I think it's good from my standpoint as an advisor where it makes it more legitimate and hopefully uh, less concerns about compliance. Um, but I also have this, you know, as someone that believes in the thesis of Bitcoin, that's like, ah, oh, you're taking away all the kind of self-sovereignty value of Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin is the only form of portable wealth that can be transferred peer to peer and, you know, taken across anywhere in the world in your head or sent anywhere in the world in a matter of minutes. Uh, there is no other asset that can do that with those qualities. Yeah, everything else, somebody has to say, yes, I agree to allowing you to do that. Or you have to carry huge volumes of it. Like if you're going to bring cash, you know. But you can't even do that, right? Yeah, gold and physical cash would be the next closest things. Bearer instruments, basically. Um, the problem is if you and I think this is this is over time, more and more people wake up to this, you know, different people. It's different events that trigger people to pay attention to Bitcoin. Um, you know, for some, it was the um, Canadian trucker convoy during COVID. Uh, for others, it was the war in Ukraine. Uh, for some, it was, you know, what's going on in Gaza, where people are imagining, wow, if if I were in a situation like that, it would be very valuable to have some form of wealth I could take with me. Uh, if you have to leave your jurisdiction, you can't take anything. You're not taking your real estate with you. You're not taking your stocks with you. You're not taking your bonds with you. You're not going to probably even be able to take very much cash or gold with you. I mean, those might be your best, but any considerable amount is going to be taken from you. Um, and if you have a credit card, just like the truckers yeah. found out, they just turn it off or and watch so where you go. Bitcoin is this kind of truly unique asset. And as soon as you put it into an ETF, you strip all that away because now you're back into a permission to system where you need it's it's no different than a stock. <clears throat> the thing you retain is the price action, which admittedly for a lot of people is their initial attraction to Bitcoin. The reality is most people, I think, enter Bitcoin because they see somebody else has made a lot of money off it and they get in. And then some of those people stick around to actually learn what it is and become kind of diehard Bitcoiners. And it's no longer about the price and dollars they could be worth, but actually kind of what it enables in terms of society and, and for their own personal life. Yeah. And when you say diehard Bitcoiner, I think like there's a, a sense because when you meet somebody that's really into Bitcoin, they want to talk about it all the time. Yeah. But there's something like truly beautiful. I talk with people about this all the time. Like 
when you go to actually understand like how does Bitcoin work and then you come up with a problem in your mind and you're like, oh, well, what about this? And then you go find out how they answered it. And every single time you're like, this is so elegant that it makes me feel like, you know, in a sense of awe yeah. to, to watch it. And I mean, I, I tell this all the time. I probably said it the first time we were on a podcast. Like when I built a node mm-hmm. and I downloaded the blockchain and I have this computer, it's only dedicated. The only thing it is doing is downloading that blockchain. And I have that thing cranked up as far as it'll go, you know. And I have fiber fiber uh, internet at my house. It took five days for that thing to download. And that's when you realize like, oh, this isn't an Excel spreadsheet. Oh, this isn't like <laughs> something you go pick up at the bank or whatever. Like this is truly, I have a record of every single transaction that has ever occurred on the blockchain. And I have the same one that all the other nodes and miners have. Yep. You feel a sense of like connection to the world that that's like powerful. And at first it seems too complicated. I don't understand it. I just want to stay in the dollar system. And then after you learn about it, you're like, oh my goodness, this is actually, like you said, elegantly simple and robust and like anti-fragile in many ways that it has this, yeah, I used to jokingly before I kind of was converted, call it magic internet money. I still think it's magic internet money. I just no longer mean that as an insult. It's like it almost, it has this magical property, like what an amazing design. And that's been tested, like, you know, it'll continue to be tested, but it's amazing that it's come this far uh, and yeah, like I, well, I think like you mentioned all the, the stuff that people see, right. The, the exchanges go down, the fraudsters, the Sam Bankman freeds, the, like all these things. And it's funny because if you're a Bitcoiner, if you're like a, they call them Bitcoin maxis where you're like, I only care about Bitcoin and all the other ones are either shit coins or like, I just don't care about them. Right. Like maybe they do something valuable, but compared to this, this is what I'm going to stay focused on. When you really understand Bitcoin, it is not hard for you to spot the the like exchanges that you shouldn't be on and the people that you shouldn't be near because you see like, oh, these are people that are trying to take the beauty and elegance of it and they're grafting off of it. They're parasites on it. So that's why like yeah. if you don't want to worry about your money getting stolen and used in exchanges for some crazy you know party kid – uh, just take it off the exchanges, own it yourself. That's And that's the beautiful thing about Bitcoin. You actually can self-custody it. Like you don't have to worry about evaluating who to trust. And this is often why I tell them, like, where, do, where should I buy my Bitcoin? And I'm like, I actually don't really care where you buy it. I care how you store it. Right. Like is on, no matter, you shouldn't store it anywhere. If you can, if you can get comfortable with self-custodying, that puts all the power in your hands. You don't have to worry about trusting anybody. And the and the things like wallets, at first, it's like, oh, this is complicated. Mm-hmm. But it's not any more complicated than the first time you started to use email. And you're like, okay, like there's, people are gonna type into their computer, they're gonna go to a, a browser and then, and then go to a website and then do these things. Like all of those things now are intuitive. You don't even think about them. Yep. But when you're first setting that stuff up, that every single step oh, feels like overwhelming. Yeah. And the yeah. first time you send Bitcoin to a you know wallet that you created, and you're like, I hope I did this right because otherwise it's gone. And you know, there's surprisingly few stories of people messing that up, like because it actually is pretty simple. And the software solutions that help you do it today are they they still have a ways to go, but they're pretty. Anyone who's reasonably technically savvy, they're already there where they're you know a lay person can do it. So going back to your letter. You hit the send button. 20 seconds before the send button, are you thinking about regulators or attention that this is going to bring to you outside of helping your clients? No. I mean, we've 
we've been very cautious to kind of walk that line between um, telling our clients what we think is important for them to know without crossing into where we could get into confusion with regulators. Like we don't manage any Bitcoin for people. Like we don't take custody of it. We don't trade it for them. Um, we're just advising. And, you know, to me, it's we also, you know, help people evaluate, you know, whether they should buy real estate or a home or, you know, other things kind of outside health insurance of the portfolio. Be, yeah. And so it would my life would be a lot easier if I could just go push all the buttons for them. And there's some days where I'm like, I should just do it, but it's it hasn't been worth the risk of misunderstanding with the regulators. So no, we've I don't worry about sending out advice. Like I think that is that is our job, and it actually disturbs me that a lot of advisors won't say what they think is right simply because they're worried about how the optics of that might look. I think moving to action, you know, actually doing it, that is where I do I am a little bit more cautious and probably maybe more conservative conservative than I need to be, but I don't really want to jeopardize. I won't be able to be in a position to give this advice if I'm, you know, cross a line and do something that the regulators don't like. So um, I wasn't so concerned about that. I was interested to see, you know, like I said, the majority of our clients have invested in Bitcoin, but not all of them. And so as we sent this out and said we were updating our kind of, you know, our investment policy statement to include Bitcoin when the ETFs come out that we'd like to add it. Um, but giving people the ability to opt out. Like we're not forcing this upon them at least yet. Um, we're not giving them the ultimatum. And so far, no one's opted out. Um, in fact, we've had a number of people say, hey, if this ETF really comes out and you know we're entering this next cycle of Bitcoin, um, isn't it reasonable to expect that the price would go up? And if so, I don't want to wait until that happens. Like, shouldn't I be buying more now? So it's actually, you know, we have people buying more now, which I think is great on their own. Or there are some kind of proxies available like within the public markets, like there are futures ETFs, which I think are terrible long term vehicles. But for a short term thing, they can work reasonably well. Um, and then there's some other products that have Bit indirect Bitcoin exposure or other stuff. So there's there's some options. But at this point, we are not using our discretion to go buy Bitcoin for people or any Bitcoin products. It's all client directed with our kind of, you know, guidance and assistance and in, in figuring out what makes sense for them. Yeah, it's funny to think about if uh, the ETFs get approved, let's say the first or second week of January of 2024. Mm -hmm. If you're an advisor that hasn't been giving this guidance, now all of a sudden you have to go from zero, I don't think you should yeah. have Bitcoin to now let's open it up and it's, essentially put it in your it's account. It's going to be interesting because I know a lot of advisors that are kind of interested, but they won't touch it until it's all greenlit from, you know, the powers that be. Um, and it will be interesting to see. And, you know, what do they do? I mean, there's a I've I've had the benefit of learning about this for the last four years. And like you said, yeah, they're going to be kind of starting at point zero. Uh, I'm really glad that we kind of have a head start in kind of understanding this. Um, I think also, though, I, I, think, I don't think everyone's going to jump at it. Um, I think a lot of them are too concerned about volatility. They're, I mean, I've had conversations with other advisors and, and given my, you know, this David, like, we agree on this other stuff. Tell me about this Bitcoin thing. It sounds crazy to me. And I explained, they're like, oh, I could never do that for my clients. It's like, why? Well, because it, you know, is too volatile. It could lose a ton of its value, in, you know, in the course of a year. And I was like, yeah, but zoom out like the time horizon here is you know 10 plus years and they're like oh well that's too long of a time horizon for us like we have to manage to two to three year time horizons because otherwise our clients will be disappointed in performance and it's like oh, oh. well that's a very different first principle we're operating on i'm operating off the assumption 
that these are going to be clients, you know, indefinitely, and that I'm trying to make sure that they have enough money to sustain the rest of their life, sustain their lifestyle. I'm not worried about measuring my performance over two to three years. Yeah, there will be a lot of volatility in Bitcoin. There'll be volatility in other stuff. I'm volatility make, in life, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that was like kind of like, I can't believe people are that short term focused. And Bitcoin is one of those things that forces you. You can't really, I think it'd be really hard to own Bitcoin or understand Bitcoin and not have a, you know, what we call low time preference, where you're thinking long term, willing to sacrifice today to have a better future further out. And I think once you get into Bitcoin, everybody starts thinking more that way. You start seeing the world through different lens and you are more patient. Uh, so like when I buy Bitcoin, I'm not worried about what its value is in a month from now or a year from now or four years from now. I'm thinking 10 plus years out and I don't mind volatility in between. I just care what the destination is. And therein lies the beauty, right? Like the 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 thing that has been taken from us in modern society is the ability to have a low time preference, right? Yeah. Like there's so much like. I ask this all the time when people tell me that they're not into Bitcoin. I'm like, well, do you teach your children, your grandchildren how to open a savings account? Do you walk them down there and say, here, put your money in here? Because what would a savings account have to be earning in terms of interest to beat inflation? And and it's certainly it'd have to be doing better than whatever the, the last the, couple of years, maybe the savings accounts work for teaching kids about money. But yeah, for the until interest rates went back up and there was zero. I mean, my wife and I talked to this and we had kids like, are we going to go open a savings account that earns 0% or close to that. Like what lesson are you teaching them if you do that? That like, oh, you put your money in the, instead of buying something today, you put your money in the bank and you know down the road, you'll be able to buy even less stuff with it. No, I mean, so when you have that environment, it actually encourages people to consume sooner. And in the short term, that may boost GDP and make things look good, but you're really just also destroying your future. Yeah, and that's the same thing as the financial planner that's looking two to three years out. It's the it's the person running the treasury or being able yeah. to determine how we spend money in the budget as a representative yeah. that says, I only care about getting elected in two years or in six years. So for yeah. me, spending exactly. money that we don't have is fine. And like inflation, I've always been like very, very wary of inflation. But as you start watching the way that it seeps into the world, I mean, it is such a dark and terrible tax yeah. that the leaders have done to us, right? Where they're like, we're going to pretend, give you this money and pretend as though it's some kind of largesse that we're offering you when the reality is like, we're stealing this from the future. And I th think people are feeling the symptoms of that. They just don't know the cause. Like you talk to people and there's this sense that like, I'm working harder and harder and yet I'm not getting ahead. Um, and I think a lot of that is, you know, and also the term inflation is a very nebulous term that I think is intentionally uh, made murky so that it's, you know, it's a shifting thing. Inflation used to mean like the expansion of the money supply, like the dilution of the value of your dollar. Um, usually when people are talking about inflation these days, they're talking about the consumer price index, like how much does this basket of goods cost and how does that change over time? And most of the things that are in that basket are things that technology and innovation help you produce more with less. So that basket of goods is actually getting cheaper and cheaper in real terms over time. But because they're printing money for simplified terms, it actually those goods are actually getting more expensive in nominal terms. And so it's this weird thing where people just assume that everything gets more expensive over time. But in reality, it doesn't. It's just mostly that the value of your dollar is becoming less and less in buying. Oh, and I'm I'm with you on this. And we made different. But like, I cannot 
believe how many people for years and years and years were like, Vance, it's not inflation that we have to worry about. It's deflation. It's deflation. Yeah. You'd be like, show me a situation like where the entire society is worse off if you can wait and make those purchases because you are saying the value of saving is higher. I mean, China had this problem for a while. Now they don't have that problem anymore. Well, there's, I, I agree with you, but I think it's important to point out the distinction when we're talking about deflation. The thing that central bankers are worried about with deflation is like a rapid deflation. Because our, So our whole system, monetary system, is built on credit. Um, basically a bunch of IOUs that if they can't be, you know, one person's asset, you know, if you own a bond, you own an IOU for someone else to pay you money. That asset is someone else's liability. If that person can't pay off that bond, then your asset also disappears and the whole system starts to implode. And when you have deflation, that's what can happen. And so they worry about the whole system imploding on itself. That's only an issue because of our monetary credit-based system. Um, and the time link that you're looking at it, yeah. right? Like if you say, well, those things crash, but on the long term, then you get rid of that giant it bubble. It is, that's but I there. think there's a valid argument that we've come so far. I mean, we've been operating the system since, you know, 1913. That, you know, it's kind of like the forest fire analogy. Like, yes, if you had let the little fires burn, these little deflationary bursts, that would be healthy. That would be a normal system. But at this point, we've not let those little fires burn. And now when we eventually have a fire, it's <laughs> going to be big. And so I don't blame, it would be a miserable experience for everybody if they allowed a you know deflationary collapse ultimately something like that is probably gonna didn't happen. you think it was gonna happen in 23 like i thought it was uh, I, I was very like here it comes there here it is there was we got close to some banking issues but they're able to plug i mean it's always a risk but the thing is they have the ability to effectively print money and so anytime we get deflation they have a lot of tools to kind of counteract that which makes the risk the other guardrail is you know inflation, which too much inflation is a bad thing too. So anyway, I think where you were going though, with where deflation could actually be good is in a world where, you know, we were on a Bitcoin standard, you had, you know, money wasn't credit, but money was actually bearer assets, something like Bitcoin. And you have society innovating and new technologies coming out that allow us to make more things and, and everything with less inputs, then that would be a healthy deflation where over time things get cheaper and cheaper. And so you can save a certain you know, amount of money and that money may not grow in nominal terms, but what it buys does increase. So it's purchasing power increases and it's a mind shift, right? Right now, people wanna put their money to work. They wanna see their money earning interest. Uh, they only need that because the things they're trying to buy are also going up. If everything was actually allowed to get cheaper, like it should be, most things at least, then you wouldn't need the value of your money to go up because it's buying more and more over time. That would be a very healthy deflation scenario. Getting there is going to require a completely different monetary system. And so, you know, as it relates to Bitcoin, I do think that Bitcoin has out of is the best potential solution to this unsustainable track we're on. And when I say it's unsustainable, I really mean it's unsustainable, but I don't know when that ends. I don't know at what point it actually breaks. I mean, We've been on a fully fiat, meaning non, you know, just government decree, not gold backed, not gold linked in any way system for 50 years, you know, since the 70s, nothing's broken yet. You go all the way back to 1913 when we got the Federal Reserve, nothing's broken yet. It's been over 100 years. Like how many more chapters are left in this book? I don't know, but I still don't see how it can go on to infinity. Well, and to your point, you've said this many times before, like the gold bugs have been predicting this sort of thing for a very, very long yeah. time. And they're, you know, they're 
stashing away of gold didn't actually pay off. Well, it's done better in the last few months, yeah, but like not really. Right. I think, and it, and I think, I think that can, yeah, I think that's a great lesson to think of. like they've, they may eventually be right, but they haven't been right yet. And if you go all in on something and you're too early, you're almost not much better than being wrong. Um, and the ironic thing about the gold story is I think they will eventually be right, but because Bitcoin has now come along, Bitcoin is better than gold in almost every single way, other than it hasn't been around thousands of years. And so the gold bugs may ultimately be right with their thesis and still not actually profit off it in the long run if they don't also own Bitcoin. This goes back to like, although I'm a big advocate of Bitcoin, I don't advocate for anybody to be 100% Bitcoin. In fact, I think that'd be insane. Um, I also don't advocate for anyone being 0% Bitcoin. I think that's, you know, potentially equally insane. Um, and for our clients, you know, we mostly work with people in their 60s and 70s who have retired or are close to retired. They're already financially independent. They live below their means and they have the ability to, we have the ability to allocate their portfolios such that if Bitcoin goes to zero, they'll be fine. We also have the ability to have enough Bitcoin that if Bitcoin goes where we think it will go and it happens in a shorter time frame, they'll, and other stuff in their portfolio gets hit hard, that they'll also be fine. And to me, that's really our job as advisors, more the risk management, you know, Getting rich and staying rich are different philosophies. Our clients are mostly already financially independent. We're just trying to play more defense, which is avoiding mistakes or avoiding things that could go wrong and always asking, like, what if we're wrong? Um, and so what if we're wrong about Bitcoin and Bitcoin goes to zero? They'll be OK. I don't think you could say the same thing for a portfolio these days that has no exposure to things like gold and Bitcoin. Like things could go wrong and you might not be OK. Um, and so within the realm of people that advocate for Bitcoin, we're probably more measured and a little bit more reserved than the average person, but it's because we're trying to make sure they're okay. We're not, we're not trying to hit grand slams for people that don't need it. We're trying to view it as a risk management. So when you say the Bitcoin price goes where we're thinking it may go, <laughs> like what, how, how should somebody understand that? Like, it'd be ridiculous for you to be like, I think it'll be at this amount by this yeah, time, but like- I'm very hesitant to put a number on it. I think it's going up uh, in dollar terms for sure. For two reasons. One, I think adoption will increase. Uh, demand will increase over time. This happens in cycles. People keep seeing world events that make them curious or interested. Maybe I want a little bit of that. Um, but even if you didn't have that and demand just stayed static, there's going to be endless money creation just for our system to continue functioning. And so when you have a ever expanding amount of dollars divided by a fixed number of Bitcoin, like the value of that Bitcoin in dollars goes up not even because it's becoming more valuable in terms of its purchasing power, it's because the dollars are becoming less valuable. So you have both effects. I don't, I don't know which one has a bigger impact over what time period. I think they're both going to impact the price of Bitcoin. But at some point, the price of Bitcoin in dollars almost becomes irrelevant. And like, I don't get that excited or depressed when the price changes. I mean, you know, I, I got into Bitcoin in early 2020, it, you know, when it was around $10,000, it dropped to 5,000. I was like, well, and like literally right after I bought it. And I was like, well, I wanted to buy a little bit more. Now it's half off. That's a good deal. Uh, and then wrote it up to what? Close to 70,000, 60 something thousand dollars and back down. And like, I'm like numb to the price because I'm not buying it for gains in dollar terms. I'm buying this as a, you know, 10, 20, 30 year plus time horizon. And position size is important. I can afford to lose it all. Like I haven't gone all in on Bitcoin, uh, but I think I've 
hedged my bets enough that I will be okay no matter what. And that's exactly what we're trying to do for our clients. That's really the name of the game. We want to make sure that you're going to be okay no matter what happens, at least for all the things we can foresee. In the world of Bitcoin, there's a, a, a popular podcast called The Rabbit Hole Recap. And one of the guys on there, his name is, uh, he goes by Odell, uh, Matt Odell. And he has a great phrase for people that are not in Bitcoin. You hear this phrase and you're like, ah, I don't know, what does that even mean? But it's just stay humble, stack stats. Yeah. And what that means is like, don't worry about whether the price is up or down, whether people agree with you about Bitcoin or not. But you're supposed to be stacking, they call them sats. So sats yep. is, is short for Satoshi. Satoshi is the smallest unit of a Bitcoin. So right. 0. 0.070 is and then 100 millionth, yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is like one of the, if you become a Bitcoin person, that's the like mantra that you want to take into that's your heart because mantra. the initial feeling, and I have a good buddy that just, we both have a good friend that just bought it and he was like, riding high as the bulls were, were running these last few weeks and just yeah. loving it. And you're like, ah, you know, I've seen this before because it's going to come back down. But the reality is, if you can just continue to sock away, just convert your dollars in tiny amounts to yep. Satoshis, eventually that pays off. And it may not be a year from now or even 10 years from now, but like the fundamentals indicate to people like you and me, that is going to be a very beneficial thing to do. I would want to own Bitcoin even if I knew for sure the price would never go up. Oh, interesting. Same because more. it provides portable wealth that you can take with you. It is the only thing that does that. And that is true utility value that I would want even, to me, the, the fact that it has a lottery ticket attached to it, that the, the potential price appreciation in dollars for Bitcoin is so significant, is just that, a lottery, like, great, I got a free lottery ticket with this. That's actually not my main interest in buying it. I'd want to own it even if it, even if expectations for future returns were really low. That is fantastic. So a couple of weeks ago, I was at a farm credit system. So the farm credit system is like one of the largest banks in the U.S. They, yep. they do 45% of the lending to agriculture. And they invited me to come in and talk about the edge of chaos. So they were yeah. like, hey, come tell us about where you get new ideas, how these things get um, into popular culture. And I talked about Bitcoin. And for the first time ever when on stage, because I've been invited to talk about it a few times, but for the first time ever, I didn't talk about the price. I didn't talk, I only talked about, um, I brought it up and I said, here is Riot Mining in Texas. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they built up a bunch of, of miners and they went to the electrical grid in Texas and said, hey, we're here to buy, you know, huge amount, gigawatts right. of power. And uh, we're going to run it through our miners. And then in last August, when there were rolling blackouts, looked like they were eminent for Texas, the government came to Riot Mining and said, hey, we would like to use that energy. Riot said, that's fine. And the government paid them $37 million. Now, yep. people were uh. super up in arms. $37 million for a month of electricity? That's highway robbery. But if you think about what it would have cost the citizens exactly. of Texas for an hour of a blackout, let alone five days, right? 37 million is a, is a steal. And that's where you're looking at Bitcoin and you're saying, this can create resilience in our electrical grid that could be truly profound and really make it so the, um, the value of, of generating more energy than we've ever created before is getting paid for. You don't have yeah, to wait for some kind of government subsidy. Exactly. It, it will encourage uh, the use of kind of these alternative energies. It is location independent. You now have the ability to basically move energy 
from anywhere in the world because there's there's all sorts of straight energy. You have these. The Bhutan is a great one. They have all these hydroelectric oh, no, dams. Okay. They have all this water coming down in Bhutan. They can't yeah. do anything with it. So they built all these hydroelectric dams and just plugged Bitcoin mines right into yeah, them. Yeah, you have that. You have these, you know, natural gas wells that aren't Up commercially viable yeah. to capture and transport, but you're just releasing methane into the atmosphere, which is way worse than CO2 in terms of its warming effect. But if you instead put a Bitcoin miner on top of it, you can use that gas, turn it into CO2, which is less harmful, uh, and make it profitable. You're no longer having to force, you know, companies to do this with, you know, worrying about regulations or subsidizing with the government. You actually make it a profitable business endeavor to also do things that, you know, uh, other people would find to be very valuable in terms of the environment. And so, like, yeah, the externalities of Bitcoin are actually really positive. Like, my interest in it is predominantly like its monetary aspects. But you look at the other impacts it has on society in terms of, you know, stabilization of the grids allowing for more diversification of energy sources, um, changing people's time preference to less consumption now, just society wide. Like, I think all those are really positive things. And so it's funny, like, I've never really been into ESG investing. My approach has always been, no, you buy the best investments and you figure out how to spend your money and your time in ways to help bring about the world you want, because simply investing in certain companies or other doesn't really change much. But in a way, Bitcoin is like the ultimate ESG investment. It's, you know, agnostic to to, you know, politics and all that. Uh, it's open to anybody. It's free, open source. It's good for the environment, I would say. I, that's a big misunderstanding, kind of what we just started. A lot of people think it's bad for the environment because it uses energy. It actually has a net positive impact, I think, on the environment. It's like it's the ultimate ESG investment. And I think it has great prospects as a financial investment also. Well, and I, in working for Monsanto for all those years, I had the experience of having people be convicted about something and not know very much about it. Yeah. And I see that going on, the exact same thing occurring with Bitcoin, right? So people will come up to me after that talk yep. and they'll be like, yeah, but, and then they have some thing like, yeah, but we're wasting all this energy, right? If we weren't doing that, then that energy could be used for something else or it might not drive the price up. But like, you have to open it up. And just like I was saying before, like every single time you're like, ah, I found it's Achilles yeah. heel. You open it up and all of a sudden you realize like, oh, wait, this is a way to make it so the trapped natural gas in Alberta no longer has to be flared. Yeah. Oh, this this makes it so you, so Arizona can build out a more resilient electrical grid so that that way we don't have to worry about blackouts. And people are slowly figuring that out. There's a few people within the uh, kind of more ESG financial space that have really been converted and become huge advocates of Bitcoin in terms of their mission isn't the monetary aspects of it. It's the environmental they just see it as one of the best tools to do that. And so I'm overall very bullish, not even just in terms of price, but in terms of just adoption, what Bitcoin could do. I think there are still a lot of hurdles. Uh, you know, there's many people, you know, powers that be that really would not like Bitcoin to be successful because it threatens them. Um, but the direction of the overall sentiment and understanding is only increasing. increasing. I mean, it seems like, We've moved from it being a radical idea in the Overton window, first an unthinkable idea to radical, to now being like acceptable, right? Like some people would yeah. accept it. And so, and eventually as these spot ETF comes up, like there'll be some amount of policy. So it'll move right into the center of it. My concern with the ETF is that this is a backdoor way to control it. It'll be yeah, like, well, the only safe way to own it is with a registered financial advisor who can make sure you're getting what you paid yeah. for. And like, 
I don't want any I, of that. I worry about that too. That's my biggest fear of the ETF is that it, uh, that yeah, they'll basically say, hey, we've now provided you a safe way to get this Bitcoin exposure that you say you wanted. And so to protect you from yourself, we're now not going to let you get it any other ways and hold it yourself. Um, I won't be shocked if that's the direction it goes. I ultimately don't think that will be successful, but it may take a while to work through. Um, well, it's a weird thing to see people like um, uh, Jamie Diamond and Elizabeth Warren, you know, sitting up, yeah. in yeah, sitting in a in a hearing, teaming up to be like, "Oh, this is the yeah. this is the refuge of scoundrels and and uh, thieves." Yeah, and this is where I like to separate Bitcoin from everything else because almost all the other digital assets in crypto, I think, are. I don't think they should necessarily be regulated that they can't exist, but I don't think they're worth looking at. And I think there are a lot of scams there. Um, but it is very odd to see see who's teaming up with the banks here. Uh, yeah, and then to watch a group like BlackRock do their about face and say, actually, we think there's a lot yeah, of utility here. The and- incentives for a company like BlackRock and JP Morgan are very different though. JP Morgan's a bank. You know, Bitcoin is a direct threat to their system. BlackRock is an asset manager. They earn they earn money based on managing assets. And so if there is demand for people that want to hold Bitcoin, it's in their best interest to create a fund, charge a, you know, whatever percent AUM fee on that and collect that. So they're they're that, far not it's not an existential threat to BlackRock. Uh, they're just trying to make sure that they move to maintain their position. It's much more of a threat to a bank. Well, that actually gives me some hope because if people have um, disaligned interests here, then that means the people in the BlackRock position are much more, I mean, they may ultimately be, you know, they're regulated and want the SEC involved in it, but at least they're not saying, well, we may switch over and and ban it, but it makes more sense. The other hope I have is that, you know, Bitcoin is not just a U.S. thing. And so the U.S. has long reach in terms of their jurisdiction but you'll start to get some game theory. You know, the more the U.S. cracks down and tries to make Bitcoin, the more opportunity it creates for some other country to have a more open society, a more free market, and you'll see more innovation go there. And with that, you'll see more wealth move there. And so, I, I mean, one of my concerns is that, you, you know, as the U.S., we try to hold on too much to like the things that are currently working for us in terms of domination, like the dollar, and that ultimately that will in the long run be bad for us. Like if we cling to it too much rather than kind of adopting and, and rolling with the times. Well, and like Bitcoin will roll over even a big country like the US. I, if you That's look why I'm at not the, that concerned. If they, you look at the hash rate, so the hash rate is like the way that miners make sure that the blockchain is secure. So anytime you add more hash rate, you get a computer that is faster than other people, you get electricity to it, you plug it in, that adds to the overall hash rate. Yep. And the more hash rate you have, the more likely you are to get little bits of Bitcoin back. Exactly. Well, what's brilliant was that um, China shut down their their hashing, right? Yep. So like all of a sudden, all these miners, it became illegal. So if you go look at the charts- It was a huge percentage of the hash rate. Yeah, and then. so you're if you look at the chart back when that happened, and it was like two years ago, yeah, it goes down and you're like, oh no, it's all over. And now you look at the hash rate since then, it, it's a blip. Right. It's like, a lot of people thought that might have killed Bitcoin. And but it, it didn't. didn't. And so every time, every time there's a, you know, some sort of attack on Bitcoin, which at this point, the attacks are mostly on the social political layer, not the technical side of it. Um, and it doesn't die. It comes out stronger. You know, it's kind of like that hydro. You cut off one head and, you know, two more grow. 
And so in a way, like, although I'm not eager to see kind of what regulation comes and what try, what they try to do to stop, I think we are, it's becoming clear we're getting to the then they fight you stage. We're probably in it now. Um, but unless they can be 100% successful, which I don't think they can be, I think ultimately Bitcoin emerges stronger and proves even further proves the thesis. It's like. Yeah. And for people that are like trying to get their arms around this, even more than the price, like put that aside for a second. If you want to see a chart that is beautiful, go look at the hash rate chart. <laughs> because what that means is anytime you're watching that, that part of the graph go up, that means more people yep. are saying, I'm going to take money from right now and not just go buy Bitcoin. Yep. I'm going to go buy the machines and plug them in to try and get whatever Bitcoin is being allocated through the subsidy, which is that 6.25 yep. and the fees. Exactly. And like, it's what it so is. There's, absolutely there's two wild. ways to acquire Bitcoin, right? You can go mine it or you can buy it from someone else that mined it or uh, and so there you have these these built in arbitrage mechanisms that keeps the whole thing very efficient. Uh, and that's what's so beautiful about Bitcoin. It is a self-contained system. It is completely outside of the traditional financial system. Yes, there's on ramps and off ramps that touch the traditional system, but it doesn't need any of those to function. Right, because ultimately you could trade a horse for Bitcoin if the person has Bitcoin and you have yeah, a horse. Yeah, and like... that's its main difference between gold. Like gold doesn't have a system built around it. It's just an asset. Uh, in order to actually transact with it, you have to have all this other distribution and you know infrastructure around it that is our banking system. And that's like it's because gold didn't have that inherently that the dollar you know had to become kind of the the medium of exchange version of gold, and then eventually they just cut the link, and then you end up with what we have now. With Bitcoin, that's it, it doesn't have to happen. Um, so, so let's go a little bit deeper for um, which one of the things that's happened in the last few weeks, although it's gone up and then down, was that fees went yeah. pretty wild on Bitcoin. So you do have to, if I'm going to send money to you, yeah. I have to put that into a node, and then that node puts it in. Do you want to go high priority? Then you're going to pay this amount. If you want to go low priority, then this amount. And it just depends how much space there is right. on that block. No one's that's setting going to the price. It's a free market where people are bidding. And, and the so if there are a lot of people willing to do the high yep. high priority. It's like Uber surge pricing. Exactly. And uh, this, the pricing got high, right? Yeah. It became expensive. I, I read about a guy trying to move one whole Bitcoin, but from several UTXOs. So he had a bunch of wallets that collectively had one yeah. and they wanted to charge him something like $17,000 to be able to move it. Wow. And you look at it and you're like, well, that's because, or $1,700, sorry, $1,700. And he's like, well, that that's because it's so expensive right now. You may have to wait. And that's something that's an interesting thing about Bitcoin is like, it is not immediate, right? And there, there are things undergirding this whole system that are going to be more complicated that up until now haven't been a yeah. big deal. Yeah, you're competing for block space, but the only other option is to ration it and give someone the power to decide who gets to go first. Right. And so like, in order to be a system that functions in kind of like a consensus anarchy system and not have a ruler in charge, you have to have a true free market like that. And, you know, if you if it's really important for you to transact right at that moment in time, it's going to be worth it to pay it or you wouldn't pay it. You would wait. And so it allows you have flexibility or if you don't have flexibility, you'll pay up. But there are also going to be, you know, people aren't going to be buying coffee with Bitcoin on the base layer in a few years. I don't know that anyone's really doing it now other than for a novelty. And so like 
the base layer is going to be used for those big settlement transactions. And that's final settlement when you do it. But you don't get final settlement in our existing monetary system for, you know, if you pay on something on a credit card, it takes months before that's actually fully Let, let me slow this down. Yeah. If I want to send money to you, then I submit this to the, the blockchain. And then if I've paid enough money, it will go through in yep. about 10 minutes. But yep. we don't really know because of the way mining works. Exactly. And what you're saying is there's two layers. There's that layer, which is the hardcore, yep. you are transacting Bitcoin. But then there's another layer on top of that, that you could do where you're saying, we're going to use Bitcoin, but we're not going to make the transaction final. So a system like yep. Lightning, where... Um, you and I put in money almost like a like a pocket change, right? Yep. It's like a tab we have with each other that either of us can close at any time we want. So you don't have to still rely on, you don't have to trust the person that they're good for because it's built into the smart contract. If I can say, I want you to set up in your tab and you've had to kind of post collateral in a way and that can immediately close. Uh, I mean, think of it similar to like, you know, in our current system, if you have, if you're buying a house and you're closing on the house, you know, they're not typically going to accept a check, at least for the big out. You're going to have to send a wire because a wire is basically final settlement. Like, could it technically be reversed? Yeah. But for the most part, it's considered final settlement. You don't use a wire when you go buy a cup of coffee. You put on your credit card because it's an insignificant amount of money. The, the vendor's not worried about it either because it's an insignificant amount of money. So for really important serious transactions, you'll want to transact on the base layer and you'll be willing to pay those fees. For things that are more inconsequential, there's other options that aren't necessarily immediate final settlement, but they're more secure than than our current systems. And I think this stuff's gonna get built out. Like I think we're still in the very, very early days of this user experience in terms of spending. Like Bitcoin is not really a medium exchange for everyday goods yet. And it probably won't be for a while. And it's gonna be that's gonna be done on other layers. And we don't know what that looks like. And I'm okay with that. Like the primary utility of Bitcoin today is protection against devaluing of the currency. It is a store of value, and that is utility in and of itself. Um, that is a reason to hold Bitcoin. It doesn't need to be used as a medium of exchange now for it to have value. In fact, when it becomes used as a medium of exchange, that's probably when the dollar system has, you know, kind of crumbled. And that may be decades away. Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, so those are kind of like, yeah, I'm interested to see what that stuff turns out to be in the future. But for now, I'm more interested in the store value. What do you think happens? An ETF uh, comes out, or there's maybe, let's say, 12 different ETFs. Yeah. And then people say, hey, I want to put, let's say, 0.1% or 1% of my net wealth yeah. into, into this. Does that mean that they're going to be transacting all of those Bitcoin transactions? Like, do they, or, or will BlackRock buy a bunch and be like, okay, this one's for you and this one's for you? Like, because that will be an insane yeah, no, amount there'll be of transactions. transactions. When they're buying into the ETF, they're going to be, um, so what they'll be buying shares of this ETF. And so as the demand for that ETF increases, you'll start to see the value, the cost of that ETF go slightly above what the underlying Bitcoin is worth, which now creates an opportunity for a market participant, like a, a bank, a big asset manager, a hedge fund to come in and say, hey, we could deliver Bitcoin to BlackRock. Let's go buy X number of Bitcoin, deliver those to BlackRock and, and exchange those for shares of their ETF. And then we'll sell those shares of the ETF at a premium to all the people that want this ETF because it's now gone above and which then brings the price back down to not, you know, to par with the underlying assets. So there's all these built-in arbitrage mechanisms with the way ETFs work that incentivize everyone to keep those prices at parity. But no, it's not like if someone's like, I want to go buy $10 of the ETF, there's going to be a $10 transaction on the blockchain. Um, it's, this is almost like its own layered technology on top of it. 
but it still will create, uh, you know, it'll create, it'll create transaction. Yeah, increase, yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. Like, and so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if fees on the base layer go up. I, I don't know. I don't have any guess of like what they go to, but yeah, there will be more activity. Um, there'll be a lot more demand for Bitcoin is my guess. I mean, maybe this ends up being nothing. Maybe everyone that wants Bitcoin already owns it. I don't know. But I know anecdotally from talking to people, there's a lot of people that um, would like more exposure to Bitcoin. It's either too much friction or too scary for them to hold their own keys and they just want to buy an ETF that's easy. Uh, or maybe don't have cash, right? Maybe they, they're at maybe their corporate, like, accounts. you know, if you're in a, in a corporate job and you're like, hey, we're going to spend the money that we get as our paycheck and everything that gets matched, we're going to put into our 401k. And now we've got this money that's been sitting there and it's never been able to go after Bitcoin this directly. Yeah, 401k plans, there may be more restrictions on because the employer would have to, they kind of decide what the menu of options are. Oh. And some of them have a self-directed brokerage account where you can then go out and buy whatever you want. Uh, But even sometimes there's restrictions of those. So I'm not Within an IRA, which is an individual retirement account, like where you kind of can pretty much buy anything you want, you'll be able to, but within company 401ks, it'll probably be hit or miss. Oh, I um, did not realize that. Yeah, it depends on the rules of the plan because the employer has a responsibility to provide you with good options and not everyone believes Bitcoin is a good option yet. Uh, and we don't know how long it's gonna change, to t- change those minds. So the halvening is coming. It's looking like it might be somewhere in the middle of April. Yep. What is the happening? So the way all Bitcoin has been created is through the mining process. And the mining process is basically writing all the trends. When you, if we want to send Bitcoin back and forth, that, that has to get added to the ledger. And that's done through the process of what we call mining. And miners make money in two ways. They get fees from the transactions. So you can bid on and say, here's how much fee I'm attaching to my transaction. And they start at the top of the list with who's paying the highest fees. And that's how they decide the order at which they include it. There's also this block subsidy or the Coinbase transaction, which um, I think started at 50 Bitcoins per block and then went to 25. So it keeps getting cut in half approximately every four years. So then it was 25, then it was 12.5, and now it's 6.25. And in estimated to be April, it's going to drop to what, 3.125 if my math is right there. And so what you have, the reason that that is, Bitcoiners get excited about that is um, right now, in order for the price of Bitcoin to stay even, all that new Bitcoin created, that 6.25 Bitcoin that are created approximately every 10 minutes has to find a buyer. Somebody has to buy that at the prevailing price. Otherwise, the price will fall until it brings in new buyers. And so if theoretically, if the price remain exactly static, that means that 6.25 Bitcoin is finding a home at the current price. And so there's, you know, somewhere between 30 and $40 million a day of Bitcoin being soaked up. To buy know. about 900 Bitcoin right now? Is it about 900 Bitcoin a day? I can't do the mental math. Yeah, at some point I did. That sounds, that sounds right, yeah. Um, and if it didn't, the price would go down. Well, now what happens, so let's say you have you know, $30, $40 million buying Bitcoin every day, and suddenly the amount of Bitcoin that it's chasing gets cut in half, you suddenly now have new price discovery because there's not enough Bitcoin to go around. So the price has to go up until some people fall out of the market. And so how much does it go up? Does it go up a double? Like some people, that's an overly simplistic model. Probably doesn't go up double just because of the happening. Um, But it does cause upward price pressure until a new equilibrium price is determined. And as I said, theoretically, this should be an efficient market and people should front run this and it gets priced out ahead of time. I think if you look around at the the people with 
big amounts of money, the large asset managers in the world, they don't get Bitcoin or they're not really allowed to buy it. So those are the people that normally would be keeping the markets reasonably efficient by, you know, voting with their money. I'm not sure that's happening. So like, although I tend to be a believer in efficient markets, or at least that you should act as though they're efficient, I don't actually believe they're purely efficient, but that, you know, just like the, the tires on my car are perfectly round, they're close enough that I assume they're round and everything's fine. And that's generally how I think about public markets. I'm not sure that's true with Bitcoin, at least yet. Um, I think there's a lot of asymmetry in information. People don't get it. And I think even the people that get it don't necessarily have enough money to purely arbitrage that away. So I think the having is probably a positive catalyst that causes the price to go up, all else being equal. But all else is never equal. Who knows? There could on the same day, you know, there could be a new bill that comes through Congress that's gonna ban Bitcoin and that takes the wind out of the sails. I don't know. One of the fascinating things I heard this just just the other day, a guy talking about when the happening happens, if you look at the stock to flow ratio, yep. Uh, it'll actually be a more, um, more it'll be more than scarce than gold. Yeah. yeah. So explain stock to flow. So stock to flow is the stock is the the existing stock. How much in this case Bitcoin is out there in the market, which is currently nineteen, 19 point something yeah. million. There will only ever be twenty one million. And the flow is the amount of new Bitcoin getting added. We typically measure that over the year. So how much new Bitcoin is produced every year divided by? Well, actually, we're doing it the other way. So the stock how much of Bitcoin exists divided by how much um, new amount is coming on every year. And the higher the stock to flow ratio, uh, the more scarce the asset is considered because the new, the new coins coming in aren't really diluting the existing supply that much. And so gold out of all the precious metals has been had the highest stock to flow ratio. It's been the most scarce asset in terms of that definition, which is one of the reasons it became money over thousands of years, the best form of money. Silver was the second highest. Uh, which is why it be, and but it was a lot more abundant in terms of absolute terms, which is why silver kind of was the day-to-day -day transactions, smaller transaction, gold was the, you know, for bigger transactions. Um, so now that Bitcoin is already on par with gold and will become more scarce in terms of stock to flow than gold here in a few months, you know, if that's a major factor for you considering like what is hard money, then Bitcoin looks even more attractive then. Um, but I think it's also crazy to think about there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Over 19 million of them have already been mined and are owned. And I think it's something like 80% of those haven't moved in over a year. They're held by, you know, people, by Bitcoiners that are like, I'm holding on to this because this is what I believe. I'm not selling this unless the price goes up a lot. And even then, I'm not selling it to convert back to dollars. I'm selling it to make my life better. Maybe buy I'm buying asset, a house. Yeah. Maybe I'm buying something so else. So let's walk through that more slowly because yeah. if somebody's like hearing that for the first time. so. Out of all the Bitcoin that are going to be out there, there's only 21 million that will ever be there. Correct. 19 some odd million are out there. So 93% of all the Bitcoin that are ever going to be in the system yep. are already, somebody owns them. That's another 100 years before the remaining, you know, 2 million are produced. Most of them in the next 10 years, but. And then out of all those 93% that's already um, owned by somebody, would you say 80%? I think somewhere around 80% haven't moved in over a year. Meaning people are getting, we call them hodlers, right? Where they, they get them and they say, I don't care that the price jumped up to 40. It's not like I was waiting for, you know, some sell point and then I'm going to do it. They're like, hey, I'm going to yep. I'm gonna hold on to this. And right now the thought is that most of the Bitcoin that are being sold into the system are from miners who are saying, hey, we got bills to pay. We got to pay electricity. We got to pay staff. We got to buy more equipment. So we're 
getting these Bitcoin in, maybe we're saving some out for ourselves. But if the price is is where where it means that we can cover all this stuff, we're selling everything that we can in order to be able to cover that. Yeah. So if we get a demand shock, let's say the ETF actually does unlock a lot of demand. And there are a lot of people that are waiting on the sidelines and they're saying, if the ETF gets approved, I'm going to allocate 1% to Bitcoin or something. If there's a lot of those, that's a huge demand, you know, a d- demand inflow there. And it's all going to be chasing a relatively small number of Bitcoin. And so that could cause the price of Bitcoin to go up pretty significantly. And yeah, what is one, if, if, if people did your initial letter, not your 5%, yeah. but if people did your initial letter and said, I'm going to take 1% of my portfolio and put it into Bitcoin, I mean, that would be billions of dollars. Hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah. And I don't think everybody will. But over time, like if they keep doing 1%, like it's as, as the value of Bitcoin goes up, 1% of that, of their of their own wealth is a smaller and smaller portion of the overall Bitcoin market cap. I mean, that's what has to happen. And this is why you can't get like a large company like Apple to add Bitcoin to their balance sheet. There's just not enough liquidity there. The price has to go up more before they can trade in it. Because they, if they just put their, you know, buy a tiny little bit of their balance sheet, the market would move huge and they don't want to do that. They need to have sufficient liquidity there. So as the price goes up and the market cap of Bitcoin increases, it actually makes it a more attractive asset for large asset, you know, large, uh, large companies, large pension funds. It needs to be a bigger, more liquid asset before it can attract them. Yeah, right. I was just listening to Lynn Alden, who's mm-hmm. like she wrote She's a great book favorites. called uh, Broken Money. It's a wonderful podcast. Um, if you all you have to do is search her name and it's yep. worthwhile. But she was talking about how at $40,000 a piece, there's a lot more institutions that can engage in it. Yeah. But until it hits $100,000 or even well beyond that, there's in pension funds and insurance groups that they can't touch it. They'd knock the boat over. They're giants. But to imagine a world in which Bitcoin's market cap does get up to, the, yeah. to that size, because right now the market cap, if you took all the Bitcoin in the world multiplied by what is the current price. Yep. That's the market cap. And it's around 800 million, I think, right yeah, now. Yeah, somewhere in that ballpark, yep. Gold is 1 trillion. So it's it's about... Gold's higher than that. It depends on how you measure gold. Um, like, do you include all the jewelry? Do you just include what's on central bank? But I think gold's closer to like 10 trillion. Okay. I think I think Bitcoin has to about 10x from here to to be gold roughly. And then again, it depends on what measurement you want to use for gold. But Well, then I, I was going to say, because what I had heard, and I think maybe what I'm talking about is just like gold bullion or gold that it you're might, able yeah, to buy. Yeah, if you look at just the subset, of that you might be right. I don't know that. And so that's right. about $1 trillion on that side. And then Apple, its market cap is $2 trillion. But you imagine that Bitcoin right now isn't as large market cap as Apple, but it seems entirely conceivable that it could be. Yeah, I mean... I think Bitcoin is going to continue to grow and mature. And so like the trajectory of it, it's not 100%, but it's I have a lot of confidence to go there. I don't know over what time frame, but you see all these catalysts on the horizon and like when there's going to be new demand, like if it gets to this step, then like that unlocks a whole other, you know, layer of demand. It's one of these assets that you look at and it's like, this is a very asymmetric bet. And so people are, you know, some people are worried to buy Bitcoin right now. Oh, it's, you know, 40, whatever thousand. You know, that's more than double what it was last year. It's like, yeah. And they're like, so I'm going to wait for it to come back down. It's like, yeah, it might look, it absolutely could lose, you know, 20, 30% in a very short period of time. Um, but you zoom out and look at like a 10 year time horizon. And it's like, it's very asymmetrical. Like unless Bitcoin fails, which it seems very unlikely it's going to fail. 
then it, it's just a matter of time before it continues to grow. Yeah, and that's like most large investments, like the, they're, if you're not in it on like, if you remove the top three biggest days where the yeah. stock made a move or Bitcoin made a move, if you take those three days out, you maybe wouldn't have made money or you'd made yeah. way, way, way less. And so it makes sense, like things move uh, quickly, it's like that gradually, then suddenly. Yeah, I think you still have to manage your own psychology. So this is where I do think, like, for most people, dollar cost averaging and meaning adding a little bit every day, every week, every month, however you want to, like spreading out your purchases, for many people is going to be the right thing to do because it manages your own psychology. You know, when the price goes up, you're excited that you bought someone that's cheaper. When the price goes down, you're excited that you didn't buy it all before and you get to buy someone that's lower. And so you, you're less, you're more likely to stick with the plan, and that's important. Like discipline in investing is extremely important. If you, you know, if you can't stick with the plan through the roller coaster ride, you're going to get crushed. And Bitcoin is a wild roller coaster ride. You know, every four years or so, it loses like 60 to 80 percent of its value, and then goes on to make new highs. But you have to be able to withstand that, and so you have to size your position such that you can handle that. And the, in fact, the. Only people I know that have, most people when they learn about Bitcoin and start investing in Bitcoin, they only go in one direction. They get more and more conviction about it. They get more and more comfortable with it. They want to buy more and they only increase you know, the number of sats they own. Uh, the only people that I've seen go backwards are the people that kind of ape in. They go huge lump sum before they really understood it. They didn't know why they were buying it. They kind of got FOMO. They saw someone else you know, making money and they go all in and then they realize they were way overextended when the price goes down. They freak out and sell because they don't want to lose everything. I mean, to me, that means you put too much in initially. Like I, like when we're advising our clients, we are, you know, the 5% is a generic, like we will customize it for clients based on that. But in general, like that's an amount that they can withstand to do that. Even if that went to zero, they would be okay. I'm not someone that advocates for putting like 80% of your wealth in Bitcoin. Like if you're in your 20s and you want to do that and you're willing to lose it all, because you have the ability to work, like that's fine. I'm not gonna tell you not to do that, but I'm also I'm probably not gonna advise you to do that either. And that's not most of my clientele. So you've been around people that have like walked the path, right? They've yep. they've like, you know, gone from I'm not interested to okay, tell me more. Yep. Walk me through the the like average person's experience. Uh, initially they're skeptical. Like I heard this thing was a scam. What about this? And we kind of, I, for me, I walk up through the monetary history cause that's what it clicked for me. And in my kind of role as financial advisor, that's, that's, I think the most relevant, like we, that's we what we talked about into, in the first podcast, yeah, right? Yeah. All that stuff. Um, I will say that, you know, probably initially most of our clients bought Bitcoin for exactly what I told them. Like you can borrow my conviction up to 1%. Let's get you there. And then they pay, start paying attention. They start watching it. Um, and the timing, this was just somewhat how it worked out. Like most of my clients got into Bitcoin in summer to fall of 2022. So they've more than doubled. So they're feeling pretty good right now, <laughs> like, which is good. But I'm also like, I think. And also a freak accident by you. It's not like you were like, ah, I'm getting them in in the right. No, it was when right I felt time. comfortable enough, you know, like I, <laughs> I was not going to bring it to them till I felt very, very comfortable that this was the right long-term thing. Um, and that took that took two years of studying and having conversations. Now, before that, if clients would bring it up, we'd have conversations. But I was not proactively going to say, hey, this is something you should consider. I really think you should have some of this on your balance sheet. Um, I'm a rel I mean, it's funny because, you know, people hear that I recommend Bitcoin. They're like, wow, you're crazy. I'm actually a really conservative investor. And crazy conservative <laughs> investor. I don't, not, not irrationally such, but like. 
Yeah, but You're most very, of our portfolio very, very, yeah. is like passive, you know, passive equities, uh, U.S. government treasury bonds. Like it's very uh, clean, very conservative, tried and true. Uh, we own a little bit of gold. Uh, we own some commodity exposure, and we own Bitcoin. And those are the things that I think actually strengthen the plant. Like those are diversifiers. Those are things that you're not getting that exposure anywhere else. And especially for people who are retired, having, you know, a lot of retirees have 50% of their portfolio in US government bonds. That is the safest thing in the current system. But it's very susceptible to inflation, which is why we use inflation protected bonds for a lot. But again, you're just tying it to CPI, which we talked about may not be the best measure of inflation, but it's still better than nothing. But if we were to end up in a world where treasuries get de severely devalued, which we saw over the last two years, I mean, if you held long-term nominal treasuries, you lost fifty percent of their, they lost fifty plus percent of their value, you know, recently. So, yeah, Bitcoin has lost eighty percent of its value at times. Like, but then it bond, came back. Yeah, but then it came back. The government bonds, you know, like and the bonds and the treasuries. It's not like you're sitting there waiting for a ton of upside. You're just trying to yeah, mitigate. So downside. in some ways, like buying the Bitcoin is the insurance policy on the other stuff. And if it never pays off, because then that's fine. You had everything. You know, it's like buying insurance for us. You know, Bitcoin's not technically insurance. Insurance are contracts. But I think you can somewhat think of it as a hedge on everything. It's outside of the system. The only two things that are really outside the system are gold and Bitcoin. Because you could argue real estate to some degree, but you've got to pay property taxes and other stuff. It's a little bit more complicated. And it's not portable. Um, well, let's let's go and talk about some of the things that happened in the economy in 2023. So we're at okay. the end of December. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that my nightmare that came true, but then was not as big of a deal, was that the, the banks were many of them insolvent. What happened there? What, what, why, why did they? Uh, so one of the biggest buyer of treasuries is banks uh, due to regulations and just less lending going on. So meaning that like they would take in all these deposits because there's all this cash going yeah. around and the government would come to the banks and say, you got to put this somewhere safe. You can't just let it sit in cash. Here are these bonds. Buy these bonds. Yeah, they didn't really have to come sell them. But yeah, the, the banks bought them. They were on the list of you know things that were considered safe assets. Um, and then when, in, when the Fed raised interest rates, the value of the bonds goes down. So suddenly their you know, kind of equity, the, the amount of assets they have on their balance sheet to offset the liabilities, which are all their deposits, they are increasingly looking insolvent. And so that SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, was kind of the first one to go. Um, and there was concerns that this would be widespread because the entire banking system is built on this kind of fractional reserve system. Like when you go deposit your money in the bank, they don't have it in a vault. They lend it out. In this case, they, a lot of it, they lent to the government. Um, and that whole system can come crashing down as soon as people lose confidence in the banking system. And so they had to kind of plug it. They, they rolled out programs that allowed the banks to basically borrow on those treasuries at face value. So, you know, a bond you bought for $1,000 may only be worth $70, you know, bought it for $1,000 may only be worth $700 now. They could go take a loan out for $1,000, even though their asset wasn't worth $1,000 because they say, hey, when it matures, it'll be worth $1,000. So they've, They've, the, the Fed and the Treasury has a lot of surgical tools to help people or institutions they want to help, and the banking system is going to be one of those. But yeah, it was scary. 
and I'm, you know, going back to being conservative, like I'm the person that for years has always been extremely diligent about checking our clients, like FDIC, their balances that don't go over the FDIC limits, don't do this because, and be like, oh, you're crazy. When was the last time there was a bank failure? And this one was mitigated. They ended up making all the depositors hold, whole, but like, it's just not worth losing sleep over. Um, and what changed as a result uh, in the economy? I mean, one thing I know is that the government came out and said, if you are a bank owner, you know, we're, you are liable for all of these problems. So all the people that were owning banks are now much more um, aware that the government will let them sink if it has to. Yeah, the government is probably less concerned about the shareholders of the bank than they are the depositors, um, which I don't know, I think is rightfully so. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with the idea of having unlimited FDIC insurance, because I think that creates too much moral hazard. Um, but I mean, this is one of the, like, we talked about the system, like we should have let the little fires burn decades ago and we haven't. Like, I don't know what you do if you're in this situation of the FDIC chair and con like, are you gonna let, you know, all these people lose their deposits that you told them were safe? They were in government insured banks. Like, I just don't see any politicians do it. I, th I think the reality is their banks are almost always gonna get bailed out of the depositors because we do have the ability to effectively just print money. So I think that's always gonna be the easier course of action, which is why like, I'm not someone that believes we're gonna have the deflationary collapse. I think that is always a chance, but there's enough tools that far more concerning is the idea of like high inflation um, because that's where they don't really have the tools to, to stop that. And so we're gonna be kind of bouncing back and forth between you know getting close to deflation and then if we get too close, they start printing money and we are then gonna have an inflationary problem. Um, but all these things, I mean, woke me up to like, again, Bitcoin, like having money outside of the system, like wouldn't it be nice if you could go to a bank and put your dollars in and not have them be fractionally reserved? Because especially when your bank's not paying you any interest on that checking account anyway, but there are no banks that are fully reserved. Yeah, and we found out this them. winter, they won't even allow they them. Allow so there was, uh, what was the name of that one? It was out in Narrow Wyoming. Bank and Custodia Bank. Yeah, they came out and said, hey, we want to, you can do it. You can set up your own private bank, but they wanted to become a part of the 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 they overnight system, the right? Where they, reserve, yeah. And so they went to the government and applied and the government said, and what they said was, we are not going to take any of our depositors' money and loan it out. And instead, we're going to have depositors pay reserve. us. Yeah. You pay us, and what we'll do is hold your money for you securely and not lend it they out. created too much of a systemic risk. Why is it a systemic risk? It's not a risk because the bank's doing anything. It's a risk to all the other banks. Because if you're earning 0% interest at you know at a big bank, I'm not going to name any, and you can go, but it's fractionally reserved, and you can earn 0% at this other bank, and or even pay a nominal fee and you never have to worry about a bank run, you never have to worry about that, you're gonna move your deposits over. As soon as deposits flee from one bank, that bank goes insolvent and you create the whole system. I mean, it's it's a house of cards and so they have to keep the charade going. Bitcoin provides that off ramp where you say, I just am not gonna deal with the system. Um, and I don't think it makes sense to fully take that off ramp because for the time being, we live in a dollar world. like. I own, all, I own dollars, I own government bonds. Like I think in the that's the bridge that we need to get there. But long-term, I wanna have at least some of my wealth that's outside of that system that can't be touched by that. Like, you know, there is so much more uncertainty with the stuff in the traditional financial system than there is with Bitcoin. Yes, Bitcoin is, the only thing Bitcoin doesn't have going for it is the general consensus that it's good, which is why it's so cheap. If everybody understood Bitcoin, the price would be crazy high. 
I, I remember when I last winter trying to explain, or last spring trying to explain to people what is a full reserve bank. Mm-hmm. People in banking, and then like not understanding yeah. it because it is so fundamental to our American dollar system. Because banks actually, we talked about fractional reserve, they make most of the money that exists in the economy Absolutely, by, yeah. by saying, well, we're going to take your deposits and we're going to loan 90% of it out to this guy. And then we're going to take that back as deposits and we're going to loan 90% of that out. So they are like creating It's a game money. of musical chairs. Yeah. So there is base money, what the Federal Reserve creates. And that's like your you know Federal Reserve notes, so your dollar bills in your wallet. And then there are reserves, which are just on the Fed's balance sheet. That's what banks hold. That's you know money for banking institutions. When you go put money into a you know commercial bank, that money gets you know lent out or sent somewhere. They're and whenever they make a loan, they're creating money out of thin air. But it's the game of musical chairs. The chairs are the real base money created by the Federal Reserve. The players in the game are all those dollars and deposits at commercial banks. And when the music stops, there's not nearly enough chairs. And so they have to keep, you know, they have to keep the music playing or when it gets really bad, like what happened in 2008, they add more chairs to the system uh, so that, you know, not too many people fall down. Well, and it's funny to think about how um, quickly a bank run can happen nowadays, right? Oh, yeah. Because you and can. That's what, that was the deal with SVB. Right. Like people are like, oh, they're having trouble. Well, then why don't I just transfer from this bank to that right. bank? But at the end of the day, you're not actually able to get it out. Right, like if you went to one of those banks and said, <clears throat> "I'll just take one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in cash," they'd be like, "No, oh, to get cash out? yeah, all you yeah, can do it, is move it to another bank." Yeah, the, and and hope that that one's more solvent. And as the banks consolidate, and there's fewer and fewer banks, there's less and less even chance of bank runs between them because if you know, if if there was only one bank, it can't really be insolvent because and if they don't let you take your money out, it's just journal entries moving between people. Like it's a more stable system, so it's not surprising that over time the banking system consolidates into a fewer number of bigger and bigger banks that actually makes it easier for them to keep the music playing. Well, what are you looking at for 2024? What do you think, uh, something to look forward to? Uh, something to look forward to. I mean, I'm actually pretty optimistic about it. I mean, although I sound very cynical on the economy and the banks, like, you know, there's, uh, I, I'm optimistic. And part of the reason I'm optimistic is I think Bitcoin will bring a lot of good. Um, I'm excited. Um, I mean, outside of what I do for work, I try to focus on things with my family and kids and that stuff's all exciting. I love my work and what I do and I love learning about Bitcoin and teaching people about it. I hope um, I hope more people will start learning themselves because I think you really need to have a good understanding of it to make sure you can withstand the roller coaster. But I think more and more people are waking up. I've had a lot of people reach out to me this fall, friends, other advisors, curious about it. So I think the tide's turning here. Um, and we'll have to see kind of what happens with the economy here. I don't know. I thought 2023 was going to be a rougher year than it was, but this is why we don't go all in in one area. We own stuff. We own everything so that no matter what, we'll be okay. And I think 2023 was yet another year that showed that to be true. Yeah. I'm, uh, I think I'm bullish on life more than I've maybe ever been. I think the economy, I'm like a little bit like, well, that's kind of nerve wracking, but you just try and diversify and I have healthy kids. I worry about it less because I own Bitcoin, honestly. That's totally true. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's definitely true. Uh, any recommendations on Bitcoin wallets? Um, I mean, there's ones that we typically are steering people towards now, but that stuff changes over time. I, I don't know. I don't want to have to make sure I update it. I, I personally, I'll yeah. say what I think, and you can agree or disagree on these. 
to me, the most user-friendly when you're just like getting started that is secure enough for, yeah. for my taste is Trezor. Yeah, I agree. And They're like the, the upside is like, you, it's a very simple thing to plug into your computer. You can like figure out how to use it. It'll take you just a little bit of time to learn how does the security thing yep. work. But then once you become more advanced and you're like, hey, I want to have something that's never touched the internet that, that I'm really pretty certain is, is going to be separate from being able to be hacked um, would be uh, CoinKite. So yeah, the, the, the cold, cold card. card. Yeah. Um, I think both of those are good. I think you described them right. The cold card is generally seen as being a little bit more robust, but it's also not nearly as user friendly for someone that's just starting, whereas the Trezor is a pretty good balance. Yeah, I think Trezor is like, it's it's almost like having an iPhone that you plug into it. It's like very simple, yeah. straightforward. More than anything, though, I'm a big advocate of multisig. I don't know if you guys have ever You and I are on the different pages yeah, on I know. this one. So, Multi-sig is like rather than having one key to open your vault of Bitcoin, there's in most cases three keys and you need any two of the three to open it. And so by having three, it means that if one of your keys gets compromised, it's no big issue. You have to have two compromised. Uh, it means that you could you know, not have to worry about whether you trust Trezor or Coldcard or any of the other wallets because you can get different wallets. So if there is a bug in the software or a backdoor or anything, you haven't put all your eggs into one basket. It provides more resiliency in terms of like estate planning. And there's, just, I see, there's I a see. lot of reasons that I prefer multi-sig. It adds more friction to moving your Bitcoin. Have you moved stuff using a multi-sig? Yeah, so we use we often will use a company that helps coordinate it to make it really easy. I, I don't think if you're going to do it purely by yourself, I think multi-sig is too complicated for someone that's doing it for the first time. I don't think it's too complicated. I think once you get comfortable doing single sig and all that, you can move to multi-sig. I prefer to use... I, I have some of each. I have wallets that are single signature. And if the idea is, you know, portable wealth that you can take with you and get out, single signature is, uh, is arguably better. If you're looking for something that is really resilient and unlikely to be compromised, I think multi-sig is better. Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely like ups and downs and I, I see it. And I also am like, ah, I don't want to include somebody else in on this. You don't and have I, to. You could do your own multi-sig where you hold all three keys. And bury them in the backyard or do well. <laughs> there's all sorts. I mean, people, it depends on kind of which threats you're most worried about. I mean, some people will will have them in, in other countries and other jurisdictions. Uh, like, I don't think you, no, most people know. They keep one at their house, one somewhere else. And that way also they don't have to worry about their house burning down and losing you know, their keys. They don't have to worry about getting robbed and someone taking it. Like, It just it removes all the single points of failure um, because I think most people tend to worry about the threats of like someone stealing their Bitcoin, which maybe that is a threat. That's pretty unusual. More likely you're gonna lose something. Mm -hmm. And if you lose your, you know, your hardware wallet, your signing device, or your list of words, the Bitcoin's gone. So with multi-sig by having in different geographic locations, you minimize That's not entirely that. true. As long as you have the list of words, you can re rehydrate But the problem with your... having multiple lists of words, if you want to have more redundancy for your backups, if anybody finds that list of words, that's unencrypted. They've got your Bitcoin. Whereas with multi-sig, if somebody finds your list of words, They've only got one piece of the puzzle. They can't take it. So I don't. I'm a big fan of multi-sig. We could probably debate. I think the this whole is podcast the, this is this, this is exactly Bitcoin, right? It's yeah. like we've reached a certain point where you and I are arguing about the minutia about you know multi-sig and how do you this store is way it down the rabbit hole. Way down the rabbit hole. More important is take self custody of it if you can, so you don't have to trust anybody, and then you can decide based on your level of comfort and technical 
expertise and what threats you're worried about, whether single SIG or multi-SIG. And if you do multi-SIG, whether you want to use like a collaborator to help you know, coordinate that and they hold one of the keys or you just want to have all three of them. But I think those are better discussions to have kind of on a one-off basis, depending on what the threat model is. So final two questions. First one, uh, if somebody's like, hey, what do I need to read or what should I watch that will help get me on the path? What would you recommend? Uh, my favorite is that new book that you broken money, Lynn Alden's Broken Money. I think if you want a comprehensive but still readable book. It's a very intense book, though. It's, it's like very intense, but someone that really or... wants to learn, I think that's that's becoming my go-to. If you're looking for a much shorter version, there's a, both a book and a long-form essay called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin by VJ Boyapati. I think that's not a bad intro. It'll give you a high level over the history of money and why you know Bitcoin it looks attractive. It's very readable. You can get the, the essay online for free. Just type in The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. He then turned it into a book and expanded on things more. I think that's good. I mean, there's... It's also surprisingly easy to read the Bitcoin white paper. Yeah. There's a lot you won't understand, but like... It's, Everyone it's should read it at some point. Um, I think finding like finding the, your first way into Bitcoin is hard. And I think it's different. For, for me, it was absolutely the monetary side of it. I was interested in the economics of it. Once I got through that, I immediately wanted to learn about the technical stuff. Okay, this is cool if it works. How do I know it works? And so if you're interested in the technical, there's a really good book called Inventing Bitcoin by Jan Pritzker that's written all with analogies. You don't have to be a computer science person to understand it. Um, that for me was another key piece of being like, okay, I can trust this. Um, there's uh, and there's other books that take it more from like the social and environmental. There's there's all different. What I find is that people enter Bitcoin from all these different directions, and then once they're there, they start to see like you were talking about earlier how it just like touches all these other areas, and it's so like elegant in in what it does. And so I'd say whatever aspect interests you, start there, and then just follow your curiosities and. Um, and go from there. Like I said, I don't know anyone that's gone down the Bitcoin path and turned around and said, like, Yeah, not for me. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, final question, because uh, I know, because last time we did a podcast, I got a bunch of these questions, is if somebody wanted to get a hold of you yeah. or learn about I Bitcoin. am on Twitter, uh, at David Aransky, but I'm not that active on Twitter. Every now and then I post something. Um, the best, like our website is laminarwealth.com. Uh, we mostly work with retirees, people in their 60s and 70s. Um, but How about I put a link to your uh, to your letter on your uh, um, on the show notes? That's fine. Yeah, that'd be a great way to do I, it. I can make sure you get that. Well, man, I knew from the moment I read the first paragraph that I was like, "All right, we're having David back on the podcast." So thanks for coming by, Good. man. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. <laughs>